Thanks, guys. Danielle, I'm not sure I'd ever heard the story about that you weren't going to be here until two weeks before. What a coincidence. Two days before. What did I say? Two, weeks, two days before. No, that's not a coincidence. We serve a sovereign God. And uh, Dallas wasn't going to be on staff that summer either. In fact, he had not been on summer staff the year before that. We had four Burnett boys on staff here. They never, ever served at the same time. It's like they had to rotate, take turns. And it wasn't until about March we had a conversation. You decided to come back. Aren't you glad you did? <laughs> well, I invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And you may have looked at the title of the message and thought about dealing with sin in the church. Oh, this is going to be fun. Glad I was here this Sunday. Things are not always as they appear. I've made several trips to California to speak at a camp out there, and I hadn't been in years, but there for four or five years, it was like every year I was back to speak at this camp uh, right outside of San Diego, California. And one of my favorite things to do, because of flight schedules, I'd always get in like a day before camp started. And so we'd always take an opportunity, me and the guys leading music, and go down to, to Tijuana and cross the Mexican border and go to Tijuana. And if you've never been... To Mexico, and all you've ever seen is Tijuana, you've got the wrong impression of the whole country. Tijuana is like a giant outdoor flea market. And I'd been several years, well, I decided this one year, I'm like, I'm going to go and like actually buy something from the flea market this time. So I found this little corner store, and I like watches. And so I was, um, I was looking at some of the watches, and I found in the little display case there a Rolex watch. I thought, man. I'm going to get me a deal on a Rolex watch. And so sure enough, I start bartering with this guy, and, and he started saying things to me, and he's speaking in kind of broken English, and I'm speaking in, you know, you kind of pick up their accent, and so I'm speaking with, a, you know, uh, trying to speak with a, almost a Spanish accent. And uh, it got down to where he finally said, okay, you win. I know, I know eat lunch today. I ended up getting the Rolex watch for $7. And we even bundled some stuff. Like we were getting blankets and vanilla and some of these other stuff you want to get when you're in Tijuana. But my part of it came to about 7 bucks. Here's the Rolex watch. Now, it does say Rolex. If you ever buy one and it says R-O-L-A-I-D-S, that's Rolades. You don't want that. At least you don't want to spend $7 for it. But while I was bargaining for the watch, I held it in my hand. And as soon as you put it in your hands, you realize this isn't real. And I said to the guy, I said, this isn't real. He got kind of indignant about that. He said, sir, it is a genuine replica. <laughs> what does that mean? A genuine replica means a really good fake. Now, see, you can go to Mexico and spend $7. Inflation, maybe they're 8 bucks now. You can go to New York City and do the same thing. Guy will come up in the park and do his jacket like this, and he's like, I've seen it. Here's the problem. Rolex watches cost thousands of dollars. You may could get one at a pawn shop for under a thousand, but most of them are maybe five thousand, ten thousand dollars for a Rolex watch. That is not what this is. So don't anybody mug me leaving today, okay? Here's the problem in the passage that Paul's addressing. It's one thing to sell a seven dollar watch like it's a ten thousand dollar watch. The problem is when you're a ten thousand dollar watch and you're acting like a seven dollar watch. Listen to what Paul says just in the first couple of verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He said, It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, 
An immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. So Paul starts off just by outlining the problem. And Paul says, it's been reported. Now keep in mind, Paul was not in Corinth anymore. He had been there to start the church. He was there for about 18 months. He's left behind a guy named Apollos who is pastoring the church now. It's been about five years. Paul is hundreds of miles away. And yet word has gotten to him that somebody in the church, okay, this letter was written to the believers, to the people in the church. So somebody in the church has taken his father's wife. I'm not going to give you a lot of detail about this. If you read commentaries, they want to speculate about who was dead and who did what first. Paul doesn't give a lot of details. You know why? Because the people he's writing to know the details. The problem is they had not done anything about it. So widespread, this guy is now shacking up with his father's wife. Probably not his mother, but his father's wife. Something had probably happened to his mother. Either she had passed away or perhaps she was divorced. The father had taken another wife. And now the son is shacking up with his stepmom. Okay? That's the problem. All right? But it's really worse than that. The reason it's worse than that is the church hadn't done anything about it. In fact, when Paul says... It's actually reported there is immorality among you. He's saying, this didn't just happen one time. Word has gotten to me, and it's still going on. And the church has done nothing about it. In fact, he says, immorality of this such kind doesn't even happen among the Gentiles. Even the heathen, the non-church people, they got laws against this kind of thing, and they're looking at the church, and they are shocked at what's taking place in the church. And the testimony of the church is absolutely destroyed. Well, what do you do when you got something like that going on in the church? Probably not that particular sin, but students, what? Don't answer out loud. Just think. You know, what do you do when you got somebody coming to church that's saying they're Christians, and yet the way they live the rest of their life is like they don't know God? It, it's an incredible handicap to the testimony of not only that individual, but to the church, because the world's watching. Paul says this, this, is, this is at the level of immorality that even the Gentiles don't approve of this kind of behavior. And instead of doing anything about it, you've become arrogant. You've become arrogant about it, literally. You're kind of puffed up. Not that they were proud about the sin, it's just they were so proud they didn't do anything about the sin. And I don't know exactly what their motive was. I'll tell you what it is today. One, I think the reason some people, some churches don't deal with sin is because they push to the extreme the idea of Christian liberty. So, well, you know, we're Christians now. We can do whatever we want to. Or they push to the extreme Christian love. Some people think, well, we just want to show God's love. Folks, we're talking about not the world. We're not talking about non-believers. We're talking about people in the church who are claiming the name of Christ. What does God say about that? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6 says that God disciplines those whom he loves. Somehow we've got this warped mentality that if we love somebody, we just won't say anything. If we love somebody, we're not going to discipline. We're not going to expect good behavior out of them. No. God proves that he loves us when he disciplines us. 
just like my child. You know, if my child says, I'm going to go play in the interstate. Well, I could say, well, you know, I really love them. I don't want them to ever question that I love them, so I guess I'll let them go do that. No, you're crazy. I'd be charged with, you know, parental abuse, child neglect. No, what do you do? No, you're not going to play in the interstate. <laughs> or if something you're playing with is going to harm you, I'm going to take it away from you. Paul says, you haven't dealt with it. You've just become arrogant. In fact, you should have mourned instead. In fact, the word that he uses for mourn is the word you'd have used at a funeral. You're mourning over the death of a loved one. Paul uses that same word to say, instead of being arrogant and puffed up about this, this should have broken your heart. It should have broken your heart that sin exists. It also should have broken your heart that that guy's not in the church anymore. He should have already been removed from the fellowship of the church. And it ought to be tearing you up that that's taking place. You should have mourned instead. In fact, the one who did this deed should have been removed from your midst. Now, let me make it practical to our day. Everybody's heard the term, well, Matthew 18. Let me explain Matthew 18 to you. What do you do when there's sin in your midst? Matthew 18. Let, let me just read. I think it's going to be on the screen. I'll read it from the screen if it's up there. If your brother sins, go and show him. This is Matthew 18, verses 15, 16, and 17. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. Verse 16. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, then go and tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen to even the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Three verses. Let me just share a few principles from the verses. Okay, Sin exists in the church. First thing it says is go in private. Don't expand the circle beyond what's necessary. Go in private. It doesn't say go tell the preacher. It doesn't say... Share this as a prayer request on Wednesday night in prayer meeting. Have you heard about what Charles is doing? We need to pray for him. No, it doesn't say to do that. What does it say? Go in private. So the first step when you know that there's something going on and somebody who says they're a believer, first thing you do is go to them privately. And hopefully that handles it. Hopefully all you say is, hey, let, let me just tell you what I'm hearing. And I'm concerned for you. Are you aware that this is... You know what you're doing here. And point out scripturally how that is not what God wants them to do. So hopefully step one's all you need. What happens if step one doesn't doesn't work? Step two, take one or two with you. Take one or two with you for the purpose of accountability, but also to make all the facts are established. Okay. And again, we're not expanding the circle bigger than it needs to be. We're not taking the, you know, at this point, hadn't gotten to the whole church yet. We hadn't put it and broadcast it on the news or anything. We hadn't talked about it around town. But you've taken one or two with you. And hopefully at that point, the person repents and you've won your brother. Third thing, if that doesn't work, take it before the church. Take it to the church. Now that's missing in a lot of churches, and I think it's because the churches really would rather not deal with it. And that's exactly what was happening in the first century. Paul said, there's a sin in your midst that everybody in church knows it, everybody outside church knows it, and the outside people are looking at the church saying, how can you do such a thing? 
So you bring it before the church. And hopefully the person again repents, goes through a period of restoration, and is restored to the fellowship of the church. The fourth thing is kind of the final straw, but it really isn't final yet. But the fourth thing is you treat them like they're not a Christian. You treat them like they're unsaved. Now, how do, how do we treat unsaved people? We treat them as people who need Jesus. So they've been removed from the fellowship of the church, but we haven't given up on them. We're still praying for them. We're still witnessing to them. But the fact that they are living like they don't know God and they won't come under the discipline of the church or the leadership of the church, maybe they don't know God. So let's hope that they come to their senses, they repent and realize, you know what, I was just religious. I didn't know God. And I need Jesus in my life. Now, let me make it real practical. This is what's supposed to happen. What if somebody comes to you and they're not doing what Matthew 18 says to do? One simple thing I want to say to you. Don't tote somebody else's mail. Like this dude right here. Okay? Here's what people want you to do. They want to come to you and tell you the problem. You know, Charlie over here, you know what he's doing? And so here's a couple of little simple questions you can ask. One, why are you telling me this? What do you expect me to do with this information? And I'll tell you why they're telling you that. One reason they're telling you is maybe they just are gossipers. They're not interested in seeing the situation resolved. They just love spreading bad news about people. Have you ever noticed that? Some people love telling you stuff that's bad. I wish good news spread as, bad, as fast as bad news does. <laughs> but some people just, they're just gossipers. They just, you know what I heard? So the first thing is stop it right there. Why are you telling me that? And then second, what do you expect me to do with this? In other words, do you expect me to be the one to go and talk to them? I'm not the one that knows about it. I'm not the one they offended or whatever the situation is. And a third option I would give you is this. Tell them, I'll go with you to talk to them. Now, Matthew 18, they ought to go in private. But if they're not going to do it and they're expecting you to do it instead, listen, don't talk their mail. Don't, please don't go to somebody and say, here's what somebody told me. You're outside the loop. Matthew 18 would tell you, they need to go themselves. So don't be spreading it. Let it stop with you. And encourage that person to go and talk to them. So that's the problem identified. Well, look, look what Paul says. Let me, let me just read the next few verses. Verses 3 through 5. For I, on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord Jesus. Why is Paul taking this so seriously? Because it is serious. In fact, Paul had already written one letter. Don't know that it addressed this specific issue. But he mentions in verse 9 another letter he had already written. And we don't have that letter. But Paul says, I've already mentioned this to you. And you, you, you're really not taking it seriously. But you know what? If somebody in the church is not living for God, they can become a cancer 
that spreads. And so Paul said, I'm taking it that seriously. So he said, for my part, I mean, I'm 100 miles away, but I'm hearing this. So for my part, as the one who established the church, certainly a leader in the first century church, as for my part, I've already made a decision. Even though I'm absent in the body, I'm present in the spirit. Paul simply saying, although I'm not physically there, I'm there in spirit because I love this church and I know the people in this church. And so I'm there in spirit. In fact, he said, in fact, I'm going to tell you what to do as if I was there. He said, even though I'm there in spirit, God's there. Jesus is there in power when the church assembles. So here's what I've decided to do. I've decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, but so that his spirit would be saved. That's a hard verse. If you read five commentaries, you'll get 12 opinions on what it means. <laughs> but here's what I believe it means. I believe God, Paul's saying, first of all, we're removing this guy from the church. He's not going to be malignant anymore in the church. He's been removed. So what does it mean for his flesh to be destroyed? I think basically Paul is saying, let him suffer the consequences of his sin, even if it means that it cost him his life. Men and women, I I simply believe there have been people that God has tried to discipline. He's tried to get their attention. He's tried to point them back to the right direction. And I believe those people have lost their life early. Why? If you're driving down the road and you see a road sign, if you've ever had to do this in a storm where it's either raining real bad or maybe snowing or it's just real dark, and you see a sign that has an arrow going this way and you realize this road's about to curve to the left, that's will save your life to know that, especially in the mountains. What happens if the road really doesn't curve to the left? The sign said it curves to the left, but what happens if it curves to the right? Where am I going to end up? Maybe in the morgue because I went left and went off the side of the mountain and it cost me my life. An incorrect road sign can have dire, hazardous consequences. Same thing's true with people who claim to be Christians and aren't living. Paul's saying it would be better for this guy not to be part of the fellowship anymore, to be outside so that he's not a roadside pointing people in the wrong direction anymore. So it's very possible for somebody to be a believer. They've trusted Christ as their Lord and Savior. And yet they're not living like it. God tried to get their attention. And they refused to come back. And so I believe there's some people like that, and I think there's other scriptures to support that that God takes them home early. And the reason he does it is because a sidetracked Christian, it's like a train still on the track, is way more dangerous than a train that totally derails and gets off the track. At least it's out of the way for the next train. So that's Paul's way he's going to handle it. Let me close just with the instructions then. Some really good instructions. Verses 6 through 13. Paul says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Verse 9, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous or swindlers or with idolaters. 
For then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you to not associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or idolater or reviler or drunkard or swindler, not to even eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging the outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourself. Great advice. A little confusing because some of you are thinking, what's leaven got to do with a lump? I don't want to be a lump. What does it mean? Paul's using an example that they would know. Paul is saying, listen, your boasting's not good. Do you not understand that a little leaven, they would put yeast in the flour and let the bread rise. And right before they put it in the oven, they would take a little bit of it off and put that in water and allow it to continue to ferment so it could be used as starter for the next loaf. And that was a good thing. A little bit of leaven. That's all it takes. Given time, it ferments and grows, and it will leaven the rest of the bread. So Paul's saying it's just a little bit of leaven. In our vernacular, he's basically saying one bad apple can spoil the whole bunch. you got a barrel of apples, and there's just one rotten one in there. If you don't get the rotten one out, it will end up infecting the rest of the apples. And so Paul's saying, listen, get Clean out the leaven. In fact, this had to hearken them back to the day when they were escaping from Egypt. And the day of the Passover. In fact, he references that. Do you remember? That they were to put blood on the doorpost and the lintel. And they baked their bread that night, but they didn't use leaven. They didn't have time for the bread to rise. They were on the move. And so they celebrated that fact for hundreds and hundreds of years after that, up till the time of christ when jesus had his last supper they celebrated the passover so they had unleavened bread and it reminded them of their flight out of egypt so paul's using that imagery that means more to them than it necessarily does to us at this point but he's saying you are the unleavened bread and we celebrate the passover why not because it comes around once a year to remind us of something that happened hundreds of years ago no we celebrate it every day we're in a constant state of celebrating the passover because the passover lamb has died once and for all we're not going to have to repeat this next year and yet that's what the jews had done for year after year after year on yom kippur day of atonement had to sacrifice a passover lamb or had to sacrifice a lamb on yom kippur for the sins of the people when jesus died on the cross it was finished it's over. And now we celebrate this fact. And then he, he lists all of these things, but he said, you know what? When I wrote the letter, I think you misunderstood me. Because here's what the church had started doing. They had quit associating with anybody outside the church. And yet they tolerated sin within the church. And so what does Paul say? He said, listen, I didn't mean to disassociate with the people outside the church. What did Jesus pray? Jesus prayed for his disciples. He said, God, I don't, Father, I don't pray that you take them out of the world, but I pray that you keep them from the world. Men and women, here's the deal. We're still in the world, and we're still to be salt and light to the world. If you disassociate from nonbelievers, how are they ever going to hear the gospel? Doesn't mean you become like them, but don't run away from them. Yet that's what the church was doing. They had cut themselves off from the world and done exactly the opposite. What Paul is basically coming around saying, listen, Spend time with the sinners outside the church, but when they come and, and get into the fellowship of the church and start affecting the fellowship of the church, claim to be Christians, those are the ones I'm saying to not associate with. And he, he gives this list. Don't associate 
was immoral. In fact, the word that he's used several times here is the Greek word pornea. We get the word pornography from it. It originally just meant prostitute. But it came to mean in the New Testament any kind of illicit sexual activity was kind of coined under this phrase of pornea. So he said, you got somebody in the church doing that? Don't associate with them. Covetous. In other words, all they want is more. They're just eager for gain. Idolater literally means an image servant. They're not serving the true God. They're just serving stuff. Whether it's an idol they can sit on the counter and bow down to, or if it's just the stuff of this world, they're worshiping something other than God. Reviler, literally abusive. It means they take advantage of other people and abuse other people. Drunkard, person who drinks to intoxication. The word literally means tipsy. Don't associate with those kind of people. Swindlers, <laughs> literally to seize or to take from oneself. Somebody that's cheating other people out of what is rightfully theirs. And he says, don't even eat with them. Now, isn't it interesting that Jesus ate with sinners? In fact, Paul, later in the book of 1 Corinthians, we're going to see where Paul accepted invitations to eat in the home of non-believers. So Paul wasn't saying disassociate yourself from people who are outside the church who don't know the Lord. He's saying stop associating yourself with people inside the church who claim one thing, so-called brothers, and yet you live a different life. In fact, he says, remove the wicked person. Two, two words. It means out to lift up. <laughs> it means pick them up and cast them out. It's like removing a cancer. If the doctor told you that you had cancer, you know what your first thought or maybe first question is going to be? Well, how quick are we going to get this out? How quick are we going to remove this from my body? We ought to feel the same way when cancer gets in the church. Instead, this church just kind of smiled at it, scoffed at it, got, became arrogant about it, did nothing about it. People, I'm not encouraging you to go on a witch hunt in your church. But I am saying both personally you. There needs to be times you need to say to God, God, is there anything in my life that's keeping me from you? Is there anything in my life that would kind of line up with some of this stuff Paul's talking about? I don't want to be that person. Then on the other hand, young people, adults, is there something going on in the church that is totally handicapping the witness of the church in the community? And the opportunity to truly worship God as He is. Because God is holy. And He will not tolerate sin. That's why Jesus died on the cross. Was to pay the penalty for sin. Because God hates it. Let me pray for us. Father. I pray that this morning is not just a hard message. One that we would rather just run from or not hear. But God, would you apply it to our life? God, would you help us to truly apply Matthew 18 in, in a pure motive, with sincerity, as Paul talks about, and with truth? God, I pray for churches represented in this building that would live out the truth of the gospel in their community in such a way that other people would come to know Jesus, rather than having the world outside look at the church and saying, they're no different than us. I'm not going to turn there for hope because they don't have any. 
God, thank you for the purity and the truth of your word. Would you apply it to our lives? In Christ's name.